During the 1960s the Tasmanian artist Tony Woods, 1940-2017, emerged as a rare talent in the Australian art scene. An advocate of modernism's pluralism, his bold figuration, vigorous abstract formalism, irregular shaped canvases that often incorporated collage and the ready-made, was a synthesis of American mid-20th century avant-garde, pop and countercultural mysticism edged with existential angst. In this lecture Sheridan Palmer considers problems of inclusion and exclusion and why a talented artist like Tony Woods became peripheral. Palmer is an art historian, curator and biographer, who has published extensively in art and literary journals. This lecture was recorded on the 4th of October 2018 at Buxton Contemporary. In Flesh of My Flesh, a book that Tony Woods owned, Carter Silverman refers to the Fellowship of Solitary Men, a euphemistic name for a group that included Proust and Rilke. But the concept could certainly apply to a cluster of other writers and artists, especially those associated with the Parnassians, decadents and symbolists. Think William Blake, Fuseli, Nietzsche, Redon, Verlaine, Malami, Sati and the notorious French Joris Karl Husman. These artists not only endowed crisis with value and used tragedy as a creative source and introspection as an addictive preference, they all suffered a sense of nervous disequilibrium. The Tasmanian artist Tony Woods, who died last year aged 77, also subscribed to this temperament. In 1964, Woods embarked on a period of seclusion in his Hobart studio, shunning society in order to concentrate on his art. Husband's novel, Arabors, uh, translates against nature, was at the time experiencing a revival and Woods coveted it as a manual for modern living. To do something Arabors is to run countercurrent go against the grain and flow. And historically, the 1960s, with its countercultural movement, proved just as anarchic and globally reformist as the Romantic and early modernist periods. In this lecture, I query why an artist of Tony Wood's calibre became largely obscured from the Australian art historiography, particularly after 1970. But first, let me... Uh, retrace Woods's rise. In the early 1960s, Woods was regarded as precociously talented with a great comprehension of aesthetic structure and enviable skills in drawing and painting. By 1964, he had rejected the anachronistic modernism of Hobart's elder artists and moved away from his extraordinary realist watercolours and cubist portraits and landscapes towards a blending of figuration and abstraction. Concentrating on his relationship with enclosed space, he envisaged himself in a mirror without looking and painted muted still lives. As light filtered through his studio windows, his paintings of chairs, floors and walls celebrated the undisclosed rather than the obvious. His presence, a ghost shadow, 
within the composition. Living in the cultural backwater of Tasmania was problematic for artists in the 1960s, and it's certainly not the case today, especially as Woods ideally wanted to be part of the bigger picture, one that demanded new and expanded levels of experience and meaning outside or beyond that of a straight society. He considered getting out of Tasmania and wrote to the reclusive, ailing Sydney painter Godfrey Miller for advice, another candidate for the Fellowship of Solitary Men. Um, And Miller warned him about the pitfalls of expatriatism. I quote him, You won't solve the lonely distance problem by being in London. London works strangely on us. Often it's a matter of violation. End of quote. The need for artists to travel, live and work in major centres, whether London, Paris or New York, not only for the rich saturation of great art, but also as a comparative measure, was totally understandable from an antipodean perspective. Miller ended his letter to, to Woods, quote, It is a good, necessary experience. We see what an intense place London is and how potential Tasmania Miller died less than a month later, but his words had resonance. During the 1950s and 60s, many artists globally were attracted to Eastern philosophies, spiritualism and European existentialism. Tony Woods, however, vacillated between the anarchic and the meditative, a restlessness best described as eclectic experimentation. The 60s, however, was the decade in which ethical and political principles came to the boil, fracturing complacency and challenging the status quo. This was partly a response to the anxieties of the Cold War and the protest against the Vietnam War. And as Thomas Crowe suggests, every serious artistic initiative became a charged proposition about the nature and limits of art itself. It was perhaps this sense of apocalyptic fatalism that reinforced the open-ended existential notion of anything goes and why not. Um, A modernist corrective to the political funerary of post-war capitalism and globalism. The new realism artist, Yves Klein, demonstrated this metaphysical anxiety by leaping into the void in October 1960. A metaphor for oblivion or obliteration, perhaps. And in 1964, when awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, Jean-Paul Sartre refused it on the basis that the only aim of the Cultural Front was a peaceful coexistence between the Eastern and Western powers. Sartre's reputation as a political pacifist and existential evangelist galvanised the anti-war Countercultural movement or generation, now seen as the last essentially optimistic movement in our recent cultural history in the West. Tony Woods embraced this dissenting spirit. In late 1964, having emerged from his seclusion, Woods broke onto the Melbourne, Adelaide, and Sydney art scenes with a vibrant mix of lyric and pop, a figurative new realism gestural abstraction and existential paintings. 
in what seemed at times a celebration of turbulent disharmony. This diversity was not so much a contradiction, but a fluid inquiry into ideas that informed his analysis of visual representation. And he was not afraid to experiment with the stylistic pluralisms deployed elsewhere in the Western world. At the same time, Woods was absolutely focused on the shifts from interior to exterior between the eye and mind, where observation was a means to going beyond the visible, a Zen-like process of making the idea visible. Jasper John said, I quote here, the mind can work in such a way that the image and technique come as one thought, or possibly one might say, there is no thought. One works without thinking how to work. End quote. Certainly, intuition was essential to Woods' art making, where no pre-thought of, or compositional structure, no underpainting or prepared sketches were used, and where errors and chance guided his eye. He believed flaws were hidden intentions, or as Wood, Woods put it, the observed tendency is normally to concentrate wholly on correcting the fault. Thus, errors are wasted as projections of change, and change itself is rarely recognised as required. All the emphasis is bestowed on error correction rather than error exploration. End quote. The New York artist Robert Morris further ex explained this approach to the finished unfinished artwork as a number, I quote, a number of contemporary artists are eliminating decisions based on quality and taste from their art making and substituting new methods based on intuitive, arbitrary notions of what felt right, often, often using materials previously thought inappropriate, end of quote. <clears throat> this was precisely what Woods was doing. His bold, um, Fauvist figuration, gestural painterliness, shaped canvases that often combined collaged fabric, front page news tabloids, and the ready-made, mediums of mass production and a temporal gauge of daily reality, were edgy and stood out from other mainland artists. It disturbed some critics, with one suggesting that Woods was flirting dangerously with gimmickry, just, but just as Joan Miro, John Miro believed that the merit of a work lies in its capacity to disturb the spectator's equilibrium, so too did Woods. The young art critic and Greenbergian disciple, Patrick McCackie, while labelling Woods as one of the last romantics who gave evidence of his gifts but failed to show substance, also rated him as perpetually promising. This quasi-accreditation and thinly disguised conceit, even if intended to spur the artist on, wounded a sensitive artist like Woods, especially in that critical period when of, of establishing himself. Woods's uncompromising attitude and urgency to get away from Australia may well have been in part a reaction to this type of snide criticism. And I find Hito Steril's phrase, negative freedom, useful here 
in which a psychological nomadism, usually associated with the status of an outsider, and in this case, Woods as a Tasmanian, helps alleviate pressure to conform, belong, or compete. Years later, McKackie confessed he could have been more supportive of Woods. Certain art dealers were also critical of Woods' art, even when they were trying to be constructive. Max Hutchinson, the founding director of Gallery A in Melbourne and Sydney, wrote to Woods in 1965 saying, I quote, as impressed as I am with your work and uncompromising attitude, I feel you, you, you must finalise some of these paintings. Your prolific, prolificness is one thing, but your current attitude in rushing onwards has the inbuilt disadvantage of producing unfinished work. End of quote. When Woods' friends dropped by his studio, he encouraged them to pose, capturing their relaxed and changing positions with consecutive outlines. Was this what Hutchinson found unfinished? Movement was central to the vorticists and futurists, whose representation of the modern world uh, of technology, speed and noise was, to name a few, exemplified by Duchamp, Boccioni, Bala and Severini's forms of continuity. And Klein's Into the Void captured mid-air movement as the great fall. The Tasmanian artist B. Maddock also another solitary artist, susceptible to emotional vulnerability, and a friend of Woods, used the existential motion of, uh, ex used the existential motion of running, fleeing, or falling in her 1960s work. But Tony Woods introduced another element that may have unsettled dealers and critics. In certain paintings, we find the back of figures or their heads in which facial expression and identity is absent. It's as if we are in a cinema looking at a person in the next row. A similar disconnect occurs in Peter Tyndall's series titled A Person Looks at a Work of Art, Someone Looks at Something. We, the spectators, are kept at arm's length in which Wood psychically edits our involvement with the image just as Magritte did in his metaphysical works. Later in the 1990s, Tony Woods carried this framed containment into his video films where everything is repeatedly framed. As Jake Wilson notes, buildings frame windows, walls frame posters, an alleyway frames the streets. Everything frames something else and is framed in turn. End of quote. In the 1960s, the Melbourne Sydney art worlds had held a cultural mandate over the cities of Adelaide, Perth and Brisbane while Hobart suffered cultural annexation. This mainland scene thrived on personality and aesthetic antagonisms driven by a new entrepreneurial commercial art market. Sales from a small private collector pool and a cautious inter inst institutional establishment exacerbated the competitive competitiveness. Arguably committed to figuration at a time when hard edge and colour field painting was starting to displace it, the real dilemma was where did an artist like Woods fit into the Australian scene? 
The young James Mollison, then at Gallery A in Melbourne, went some way to alleviate this by advising Woods, as well as wanting to show his work, it was Mollison who encouraged Woods to enter into major art prizes, um, even though Albert Tucker personally advised Woods not to. And here, perhaps the older artist feared displacement by a more exciting younger figurative painter. But dealer exclusiveness was a problem, and <coughs> with Mollison saying to Tony Woods, how you manage this with the Australian galleries, I don't know. Tony Woods, however, was getting cultural approval. The modernist architect, Robin Boyd, purchased a major work and hung it in his office. The American millionaire um, art collector, Harold Mertz, bought several of Tony's paintings. Lord Milo Talbot, resident in his rural Tasmanian property of Malahide, became an early dedicated patron. And H.C. Coombs, then chairman of the Reserve Bank of Australia and chairman of the nomination committee for the Harkness Fellowships, purchased paintings for ANU and the Reserve Bank. In 1967, the University of Sydney's Power Institute of Contemporary Art opened its doors and the groundbreaking two decades of American art, one of the most important collections to have ever left the United States, arrived in Melbourne from New York's MoMA in July. The mood for contemporary art was well and truly on the rise, and fortuitously, Tony Woods was awarded a Harkness Fellowship in, for 1968. A brilliant coup uh, and validation given that there was no application but a process evaluated on talent. Furthermore, the American art critic Clement Greenberg arrived in Sydney on a national lecture tour promoting post-painterly abstraction, and the new Harkness awardee, Tony, was asked to host a party for him in Hobart. <coughs> Greenberg would become a crucial link in New York for Tony Woods. Also Bernard Smith, the new director of the Power Institute, guaranteed Woods a Paris studio at the Cité des Arts Internationales, effective after his two years in America. Tony Woods' regionalist straitjacket had loosened and success seemed sealed. Woods arrived in New York in August 1968 in what was politically and artistically a charged atmosphere. Martin Luther King and Senator Robert Kennedy had been assassinated and there had been a failed attempt on Andy Warhol. Woods said that going to exhibitions would get the blood up and you would find yourself rushing back to the studio. He saw Richard Serra's lead splashings at the Castelli warehouse in December and altogether responded to this high tide of late modernism and his new cultural freedom by jettisoning figuration for abstraction. Living in the unparalleled world of the infamous Chelsea Hotel, the epicentre of New York subculture, Woods mingled with the famous and would-be famous. Residents at the time included Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, and the Australians Farley Myers, Brett and Wendy Whiteley. And the hotel foyer and hallways were covered with artworks. As Gary Willis noted, Tony Woods's painting hung next to a Nicky Saint Fowl. 
The Chelsea was in Cloak's proximity to Woods' studio on the corner of 7th Avenue and 23rd Street. And each morning as Woods walked along the pavements, his attention was caught by shadows and human stains, what he referred to as Manhattan's bruised bitumen skin. If urgency had characterised his 60s works, his New York period invited a sense of transience. Interested in Gorky, Jasper Johns, Rauschenberg, Reinhardt, Ed Ruscher, Olitsky, Morris Lewis, Helen Frankenthaler, and Noguchi, he believed that his new reductive direction, in which all superfluity was eliminated, fitted a moment. Indeed, Duchamp had written in 1955, I quote, the change came when American artists realised they didn't have to do battle constantly with the past. They could virtually skip it and go straight to the new. Woods' paintings were undetermined fields of subdued colour, animated by acrylic rivulets, scabs, clots and rubbings, emblematic of the city's underbelly violence. It could also be said they reflected the migratory solitude of a stranger in a Duchampian paradise. In the late 60s, there were a swag of Australians in New York and Woods kept company with Ian and Avril Byrne, uh, Michael Johnson, Clem Meadmore, Noel Sheridan, Robert Jacks, Brett Whiteley and Patrick McKackie. Both Whiteley and McKackie were also Harkness Fellows. This time, McKackie applauded Woods' new direction of reductionism, writing for The Age, and I quote, the paint is so much subtler in its dissonances, now moves and delights, a product of a meditative imagination seeking to exorcise its own turmoil. They are the first indications that we have a potentially sizable figure in Tony Woods, end of quote. No longer perpetually promising, but potential. McKackie, who also knew Greenberg, was understandably extolling Woods' new abstraction. But when Woods said later in his life that he thought he would never arrive, one wonders just how much subliminal damage or impact McKackie's criticism actually had. Back home, the Australian critics and dealers responded negatively towards Woods' new lyrical abstraction, even when Mervyn Horton validated Woods as part of the Australian artistic cognoscenti by including him in present-day art Australia, a who's who of contemporary uh, of the contemporary art scene. As already mentioned, Clement Greenberg became an important contact and introduced Woods to key museum people, artists and dealers, including Odlitsky and Kenneth Nolan. Gary Willis has noted that David Whitney from the Whitney Museum visited Woods' studio and took him off to exhibition openings where he met Barnett Newman and Robert Rauschenberg. The Poindexter Gallery visited his studio and expressed interest in showing his work. And at one dinner function, Woods was seated next to Mark Rothko. The prospects all looked good for this outsider. But after 18 months in New York, 
Hood's American dream ended tragically when fire destroyed his studio and his Harkness paintings, ruining what might have been a sequence of successful shows and an international reputation. Escaping only with his life, Woods returned to Australia suffering post-traumatic shock and emotional disequilibrium. He settled in Sydney, a city more receptive than Melbourne to abstraction, and where Brett and Wendy Whiteley offered him accommodation at their Palm Beach house. It was idyllic compared to the fast, competitive world of New York, but the loss of the two years' work left a palpable void. Through Whiteley's influence, Woods adopted a Zen approach to life, though he had already absorbed this spiritual process much earlier. He returned to figuration and reintroduced formal codes of flatness, line and colour. Word also got around that a talented young artist with exceptional drawing skills had returned from New York. And when John Olson heard this, he challenged Tony Woods to a drawing duel. A time and a place was arranged, and Woods punctually turned up with his pencils and paper and waited. Olson never arrived. Perhaps the thought of being outdrawn was too horrific, but the old artist may have also calculated that his absence would deny Woods any glory of winning. If Olsen had had the courage to face his opponent, this would undoubtedly have helped Woods restage his comeback in the Australian art world. A bit of theatre or spectacle, especially in the boom years, was not uncommon. It is what Hal Foster called the medium is the market. And the 1970s was a time of burgeoning art dealers who nurtured collector prestige and investment of contemporary art, thereby reinforcing art's commercialisation. Woods and Whiteley often drew together and hung out at Martin Sharp's Bohemian Yellow House in Pops Point, where Brett created the bonsai room. In fact, Woods was the progenitor of the bonsai idea, but predictably the kudos went to Whiteley. One evening, Whiteley suggested to Woods they rise early to sketch the sunrise. As the first rays appeared, Brett threw himself into drawing the cosmic halos, and on finishing turned to see what Tony had drawn. Having embedded one of his pencils upright in the soil, Woods's sunrise was a slender line cast by the pencil one of the longest shadows Tony had ever seen. And this illustrates Woods' unique optic and ongoing conceptual concerns with light and shadow. In early August 1970, Brett and Tony caught the train to Melbourne where Whiteley was having a show at the Australian galleries. In fact, Whiteley didn't want to exhibit at a commercial gallery and asked that his work could be put elsewhere. It also turned out that um, the American Dream and the Baudelaire paintings were so large that Stuart Purvis had to rent a, a three-storey warehouse in Smith Street, um, where Safeways is now. Um, these were the years of excess, and with all the floors filled with paintings, drawings, sculpture, music, uh, film and taped sounds, 
and everybody primed with alcohol and drugs. It was the most spectacular uh, and wildest exhibition, um, exhibition opening ever seen in Melbourne. Um, while Tony Woods, Martin Sharp, Franklin Johnson and Peter Wright all had works on the top floor, they were completely eclipsed by Whiteley's extravaganza. On the law of averages, one artist always gets lifted above the others. And while various reasons account for this, including cultural and economic power and narcissism, the end results are at times absurd notions of superiority. As Whiteley's fame escalated, Woods's moderated. Yet in 1971, the two artists were invited to exhibit together at the Western Australian Arts Festival. And given their combined artistic profiles and friendship, it's tempting perhaps to reconceptualise the current uh, NGV, Whiteley and, and Balderson <coughs> exhibition, which, as impressive as it looks, as that of Whiteley and Woods. At this point, Tony Woods also found the Sydney scene aggressively alienating and disconnected. And by late 1971, he was permanently back in Melbourne. Though he began exhibiting, he had lost the dream state of his New York paintings and the angst of his former figurative work. And the death of his patron, Marlo Talbot, in 1973 was another blow. Unable to capture a position in either the Melbourne or Sydney art worlds, it had been easier, Tony said, to establish himself in New York than it was in Australia. This points to a self-absorbed value system a cultural and a cultural practice of disregard. And it was not until 1990 when Grazia Gunn gave him a 25-year retrospective at Acker in the Domain Gardens that a genuine gesture of acknowledgement was forthcoming. And this also raises questions about cultural support for professional artists within Australia and the need for some kind of reform that sustains them, especially during fellow periods. In the late 1970s, Tony Woods produced an iconic series of paintings of barn doors made at his Denali studio on the east coast of Tasmania. These more fully realised paintings use both Woods's inner logic uh, and the linking device of light and shadows to create a metaphysical paradox of the negative and positive, where the outside moves in and the inside is shrouded by diffused, derealised space. It is a locus of spatio-temporality and raking incandescence. Woods, the archetypal romantic, was back in that familiar solitary passage of presence and absence. And from this began a long-term series of light situations. Um, paintings mostly executed within his Fitzroy studio of light falling over objects and where liberation and animation of both the light source and the object occurs. Leslie Chow suggests that absence is stronger than presence in these remarkable works and in Painted Shadow, um, for example, she says, instead of a nude descending a staircase, Light takes the stairs by itself, no longer needing the human figure to carry it, 
It's as if left to its own device, the light might be able to invent a reality of its own. End of quote. Much of Woods's mature career, however, was spent in the large two-storied Fitzroy studio where he lived a Spartan existence and in which nothing got in the way of making art. From the mid-1980s, he increasingly chose not to exhibit and was reticent about selling, preferring to keep his art as a work in progress. He rejected materialism and the demands of the commercial art world and as such was seen institutionally as an outsider. Or put another way, Tony Woods was a contemporary Rilkean figure. He qualified his alienation as, I have been alone all my life. But this negative freedom was double-edged. He could make the art he wanted and not feel pressured to sell, but apart from a dedicated group of fellow artists, the art world largely neglected him. As John Catapan said, that as an artist, artist's artist, he was a role model. But unfortunately, he paid the price. Woods, however, was not one for lamenting such displacement, and from around 1990, his artistic production expanded with an astonishing body of paintings, drawings, prints, videos, Super 8, and sound works. An obsessional observer of human nature, Woods' sense of the real, both visual, social, and moral, meant he was attuned to every moment. And using a hand-held VHS video camera, he became an image and sound archivist of his local urban landscape. Setting his own rules and collecting his own forms of knowledge and fields of engagement. His tapes of ambient sounds and noises, wind, parrots, barking dogs, ambulance, and tree lopping, is an oral form of presence and finds affinities with other experimental sound art artists from Jan John Cage's improvised disjunctive purity, which had been a very early influence on Woods in the 60s, to fellow members of the Melbourne Super 8 filmmakers group. These sonic essays and videos not only link directly to his later abstract paintings, but foreground the postmodernist dictum of change the object itself. Woods's experimentation with the moving image of grainy silhouettes and shadows playing with streaming light are visual ideas in the making, and actually you could even uh, easily see that it was a process from his Manhattan days as well. Um, he also preferred to retain false starts and dead moments. He rarely edited his films or sonic essays, but would happily remix them as a means to an end. And his free play zooming was consistent with his uncensored approach to movement and error exploration. It was as much about art invading life as the unobtrusive questioning of the peripheral, especially where dilapidated humans are observed without moral judgment. And I'd like to quote Jake Wilson on Woods's aperture uh, onto his Fitzroy world. This is what uh, Jake has written. One such location is the alley behind Woods's studio where the junkies shoot up. An ambiguous space, halfway between the public and private. 
Woods' camera peeps through a hole in the fence as if spying on some archaic ritual. As usual with Woods, it's just enough to look. The pure hunger of the junkie resembles the artist's hunger for the image. In both cases, it's a matter of self-abandonment. In Hito Steyl's writings on the fate of the poor image, I find a correlation to Woods' video work in that they both reach far beyond the sphere of representation and into the world where the order of things and humans of life, death and identity is suspended. In 2005, young artists have become increasingly attracted to Woods' company, his film, sound archive and his storehouse of cultural ideas and visual thinking. These friendships provided a two-way exchange in ways of looking and listening to the world. Moreover, the validation by this much younger generation gave Woods an extraordinary sense of renewal, something the art world post-1970 had denied him. For all the outstanding success of his early career, his abundant and ceaseless productivity, one marked by a maverick laboratory of approaches and often of an art outside of or in vital opposition to quotidian and bourgeois values. Tony Woods, it can be argued, is a prime example and indeed one of many but ne- many significant but neglected post-national artists who deserve to be brought out of the ambivalent margins and repositioned into a new revised narrative of Australian art historiography. As Richard Grayson has put it, we need an investigation into the displaced histories within history. This recording was produced by Mara Schwitt-Vega for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon Wurrung and Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au